0: I'm going to pray. I'll, I'm going to have you stand again. I, sorry. You'll, you'll get a chance to sit. Just go, humor me here. We're going to pray. We just prayed for Ezra, but I want to pray for you right now. I'm going to pray for God's word. I'm going to pray that God would do a mighty work in our midst today. Lord, I thank you for your beautiful people. I thank you for the people that you've brought here this morning. Lord, we thank you for this country. Amy reminded us what a wonderful country we live in, the freedoms that we're experiencing. But we recognize that these are secured because of what you've accomplished. We thank you for those uh, throughout the generations that have come to our land, who have brought uh, prosperity and blessing. And many of them had faith in you, Lord, and we're still seeing that today. So many who immigrate to Canada are believers, and they have enriched the church. And we thank you for that, Father. Now we pray today as we hear your word, Lord, help us, Lord, to be not just hearers, but doers. I pray today, Father, that you will speak in every heart, that you will challenge us, Lord, where we need to be convicted, that you will convict us, where we need to be encouraged, that you will encourage and grant us courage, Lord, that you will direct our steps, that you will give us insight and wisdom and understanding, Father, so that we can live a victorious life that we can live a joy-filled life, that we can live a life filled with your dynamic peace and that our hearts would overflow with love towards all. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name and God's people said. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to have you turn this morning. We're doing a series from the Gospel of Mark. We're in Mark chapter 14. We just finished last week on the Lord's uh, table, the Lord's Supper, the last... Passover that Jesus celebrated with his disciples. And now we're moving to a very interesting sequence of events where Jesus goes into the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples, and we're going to learn some powerful things there. You know, this you know, I have the blessing and privilege of having some friends, and you know, books just find their way to me. And recently a friend of mine gave me a book by Jonathan Sandys and Wallace Henley, and it's entitled God and Churchill. The great leader's sense of divine destiny changed his troubled world and offers hope for ours. How many know who Winston Churchill is? Just raise your hand. You know who this name is. Okay, some of you. How many have never heard the name Winston Churchill? Have no idea who I'm talking about. Okay, anybody? Okay, that's good. Some of you. You know, look it up on Google. Winston Churchill was a very famous person because he became the prime minister of England during the Second World War And was absolutely critical in actually allowing his nation not to be defeated by Nazi Germany. So that gives you a little synopsis. But Jonathan Sandys, one of the authors, is actually the great-grandson of Winston Churchill. And both of these authors, it's very interesting, at the very beginning they share a little bit of their story. You know, deeply affected by our secularized culture you know struggled with having any sort of faith in almighty god but eventually through personal crisis came to a personal faith in Jesus Christ and the great grandson especially you know he, he grew up you know his dad was the grandson of Winston Churchill so and you know he he heard about Winston Churchill all his life i mean that's his family right he's learning about him But he began to realize with all of the literature, and there's many books that have been published about Winston Churchill. He's been a great leader. There's been very few, if any, books ever talking about the spiritual dimension of Winston Churchill's life. And this book that was just published in 2015 actually talks about that, which is very insightful. This is what I like. I'm just quoting a little bit from their book. It says, Momentous is a word befitting of Churchill. His presence or foresight or forethno- foreknowledge. At 16 years old, he said to one of his classmates in Harrow, which is a boys' school, that he felt that God, that God was actually showing him that he would be the leader of his nation during a time of invasion against his country. He is 16 years old. How many go, that's a very unusual thing for a teenager to be saying. So as a teenager about his future leadership role for his nation nation and his early experiences and relationships would all be a part of what prepared him for his life mission. When he became the prime minister on May the 10th 1940 World War uh, 1 sorry 2 had already started in September of 1939. So now you know, time had gone by. The nation was in crisis. He got elected prime minister. How many would like to be elected prime minister in a time of a world war? But well, that'd be kind of tough, isn't it? Taking over in a very challenging moment. He says here, he declared it to be the destiny for which his previous life or his early life had been the groundwork. As for relationships, Churchill had a far than less ideal upbringing. As a matter of fact, during the 19th century. He was born in the late 1800s. He was born in an aristocratic family. In other words, very wealthy people. His dad was a member of parliament, member of the House of Lords. His name was Lord Randolph. Uh, But both his mom and dad had very little relational connectedness with their children. By the way, this was kind of a very... Very normal for that time. The parents, you know, socialized, were busy. They usually hired outside help to raise their children. There was very little emotional, physical connectedness with their children, and especially in this situation. Lord Randolph actually was very um, critical of Winston, constantly just put him down when he, when he talked to him. So he, he saw him as a loser and spoke words of uh, depreciation into his life. Some of you can, I, I'm sitting here talking about this, some of you can go, I know exactly what he's talking about. My dad did not build me up, he just constantly tore me down. That was his experience. But you know, amazingly, Winston Churchill idolized his father. Isn't that amazing? In spite of all of that, he had such a high regard for his dad. His mother pushed him away too, but because she was preoccupied, with a series of men who were not her husband. She was, you know, very unfaithful to her husband. Her husband, I don't think, it was faithful to her. It's a very weird relationship. Churchill himself physically was small. And he was often the object of being bullied by other boys. And so, how many already begin to sense, you know, he's growing up where he feels rejected, His mother's not there to nurture him. His father criticizes him, and he's bullied. How many go, doesn't sound like a very good beginning, does it not? Right? Can you see this? Isn't this kind of tough? You know, but overall, he overcame that, and he developed a very strong will and a deep sense of persistence. Such struggles actually uh, shaped Winston Churchill. He developed an attitude that one day he would articulate in the midst of some very dark days when England felt like it was going to surrender to the onslaught you know, of, of Nazi Germany. Which were raining down those bombs into, you know, those missile bombs into their city. It was terrible. It was a terrible time. Very dark hour. And Winston Churchill spoke to the nation and he said, never give in. Never give in, never, 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 in nothing great or small, large or petty. Never give in except to to conviction of honor and good sense. Never yield to force, never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy, but Who put such moral steel in Churchill's heart and spine? That's a great question. I mean, here's a guy that would seem to have nothing going for him, yet somebody invested in his life. If his parents were not strong spiritual and ethical guides, who gave Churchill such powerful principles in his life? You're going to love this. Uh, And this is what this book is about. Actually, Uh, there was a lady that very little has been said about, but she was Winston Churchill's nanny. Her name was Elizabeth Everest, and she became more than a caregiver. Later on, when she passed away, Churchill wrote, one of my greatest admirers, friends, encouragers, blessers, was now taken from me. He really loved this lady. She was more than, she was like a surrogate mother to him. She was a spiritual mentor whose simple and resolute faith would anchor a little boy who could be a troublemaker and a disappointment to his teachers. Actually, he was terrible in school. He you know, barely passed. How many can hardly relate to this? This was a great leader who had all of these things to overcome in his life. Her influence, however, would prove to be lifelong. She gave Churchill a love for the King James Bible. Now, before you get all excited... Just just say something. There was only a few translations at this point, okay? And when I got saved, all you had was the King James. So. But she gave him a love for the Scriptures, and he loved reading the Bible. And Churchill got a lot of insight and inspiration from reading the Bible, even though later on as a young man he struggled with his faith life. He read, you know, Darwin, and he read a lot of the stuff that challenged his faith. If, you know, it was really hard for him to become a total agnostic. You know why? Because he was in the military and people were shooting at him. And so Churchill realized, you know, you can, you can intellectually think certain things, but he found himself praying to God for protection. You know, I mean, you know, that's kind of the way it works when your life is on the line. So he developed a real faith in God. So... Um, not only did she give him a love for the King James Bible and an understanding of the ways in which Christianity formed a certain way of life, in Churchill's own words that he spoke of again and again as a, Christ, as a leader, he talked of the Christian civilization. Now, you have to understand something. This is back in the day when people didn't travel a lot. Churchill actually fought in India. And if you go to India, what's the predominant religion of India? Hinduism so he saw Hinduism in its full-blown aspect you know with caste system and all the difficulties and problems there then he was in Africa and there was an uprising amongst uh, especially near Africa in the northern part of Africa there was an uprising with radical Islam one of the leaders rose up and felt like he was like another Muhammad you know Another prophet. And, and so Britain was fighting with this guy and Churchill almost lost his life in that battle. And so he saw what radical Islam brought to the equation. How I many are getting a little picture? This book is kind of relevant, folks. You know, we're not just talking about the past, but the past impacts the future. It impacts the present. And Churchill talked about the value of Christianity actually governing a civilization. And he believed it with all of his heart. He saw Christianity as superior to all these other forms uh, of culture. And then uh, he was passionate in Christianity's defense as the many references to it in his speeches demonstrated. A lot of people thought that was just you know, political platitudes, but when you start studying his life, you realize this was a real issue in his soul. Now, the true measure of a person is not what they've achieved or acquired. That's not the true measure of a person. But what they've had to overcome and how they've handled the great tests of life, that's the true measure of a person. So you want to talk about greatness? Greatness to me, you know, some people, they have everything given to them. It's not, it's not hard to be successful if somebody—if everybody else gives you things to succeed with. The true measure of a person is what you have to overcome in order to, in order to do anything. And it's not just about yourself. What I love uh, is it's... It, it, It's not about the person you are or are becoming. It's not about what you have done for yourself, but what you have done for others, often at the expense of yourself. The true measure of a person's character is what you've done for others. Overcoming great obstacles to do it. And why am I saying all of that? Because I want to show you today, in the life of Jesus, that's exactly what we're going to learn. What Jesus was willing to give up in order to do for you and for me. That's the true measure of true character. So, we're going to take a look today at this amazing battle that raged inside of Christ. And I believe that the great battles of life are not necessarily fought in a physical realm. They're not fought in physical battlefields, but rather they're fought within the human heart. And every one of us are fighting these battles. That's where all the real battles are first fought. The outcomes are determined in the human heart. It is the battle of the will. Before you and I can do anything, we have to to win something within our own soul. We have to win that battle first of all. Will we do God's will? Especially when they're at cross purposes to our will. You know, it's, it's really easy to say, you know what, I'm going to do what God wants me to do when I agree with it and it's, I can see the benefit of it. But what happens when God's asking you to do something that you don't really want to do? What happens when you want to do something that God doesn't want you to do? And there's a battle that's going on inside of your soul. This is what I want to focus in because there will come moments in your life as a Christian that this will become the, the issue. And if you don't win these battles, you will be defeated. You will actually falter. You will become a failure in the most important contest, which is the contest of your own walk with Almighty God, the contest of faith. You know, this is the victory in our lives, even our confidence in God, our faith in Almighty God. So will we use, you know, our freedom to sin or will we use our freedom to obey God's word, which is actually God's will? And that's the choice really only Christians have. I think people can overcome things that are not Christians, but ultimately you and I cannot overcome all the things that were gonna come against us. Sin is just far too powerful for that. And there are areas in our lives where we're struggling with with certain elements called sin. Everyone in this room is struggling with something. We all struggle with things. You know, if you don't think you're struggling with something, I wanna talk to you. You're not living, you know. Something, you know. Or you're just giving into to it. There's a battle that's going on. To do the right thing at every single time means that you'll have to fight these struggles. Now, Timothy Keller rightfully points out something regarding the story of Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. I think this is powerful. He said, you know, the Greeks and the Romans left the stories of leaders and heroes as they faced death, and without exception, these people were calm and dispassionate in their, in their final hours. In other words, you know, they were heroes. The way they handled even dying, they just rose above this holy she called death in contrast the jew in jewish literature you know such as the first and second maccabees those are apocalyptic uh, no uh, apocryphal books you'll see that when the jews wrote of accounts of death of major figures and heroes they did not make them cool and removed Like the Greeks, rather they are shown as hot-blooded and fearless, and they praise God as they're being sliced to pieces by their persecutors. Okay, so they have a whole different view of what you should be doing when you're dying. Nothing in either of these traditions, indeed nothing in ancient literature, resembles the portrait that Mark is going to give us of Jesus' final hours as he faces death. As a matter of fact, the way Jesus faced death, he struggled with it. You know, when you read all of these heroes, they just seem to have no problem with it. As a matter of fact, when you read all the martyrs, it seems that like God gives you know, martyrs special grace to handle death, but yet Jesus himself struggled in the Garden of Gethsemane. Let's pick up the story in Mark chapter 14, verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. I'm going to unpack that in a moment. Hang on, those are important terms. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, that's Aramaic. Father, he's basically saying the same thing. Everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body or flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. And when he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting enough? The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Now last week, I brought out the idea that Jesus was not a martyr and Jesus was not a victim. That Jesus willingly laid down his life. But now we come to this passage of Scripture and it looks like Jesus is shrinking back from his own death. So what in the world is going on in this story? Well, first of all, we need to understand That something is happening here that we don't fully grasp just by a superficial reading. It says here that Jesus was deeply distressed and troubled. Now, the the Greek word literally means that Jesus was astonished. Something was happening when he went into the garden that even surprised Jesus. He was kind of astonished. Then it says he was overwhelmed he had not anticipated to the degree that it was occurring that it was now beginning to overwhelm him the word for troubled here means to be overcome with horror h o r r o r horror he felt revulsion when we read of the martyrs of the church i've already said we see special graces and yet what was happening with jesus why didn't jesus live a more you know get to this point and be more heroic and I like what Keller points out. I'm going to paraphrase him. He says, why is it that many of Jesus' followers have died better than Jesus? Of course, he must have been facing something they were not facing, <clears throat> which is true. Uh, remember that in the Hebrew Scriptures, the cup is a metaphor <clears throat> excuse me for the wrath of God on human evil. Jesus was now talking about this cup that he had to drink. In other words, the mission that he was being sent on. What was this cup that he had to drink? Well, it's an image of divine justice being poured out on injustice. In other words, when Jesus was um, looking at what was about to happen, we see here the one who is fully God and fully man, one with the Father and the Holy Spirit from all of eternity, now realizing for the, you know, that he was going to be cut off. Can you imagine that? For all of eternity he had relationship with God. Jesus, who had lived a sinless life, was now going to drink a cup and take on the sin of the whole world. Every act of hatred, every act of exploitation, manipulation, brutality, violence, anger, you know we could just go down. Just think of all the nasty things in the world and Jesus now is going to drink from this cup and take on the sin of the world. And he himself was now going to become sin so that the wrath of God could could come upon him and all the justice of God for all the injustices of humanity would be displayed against him. And how did God do that? By turning his back on Jesus. Is that an amazing thought? See, you and I turn our backs on God. God never turns his back on us. But at this moment in human history, God was about to turn his back for the very first time on one person, his only son. That's what was disturbing Jesus. That's the part he was having a hard time with. So, he was about to suffer for the sin of the entire world. So how did Jesus and his humanity handle the most painful and difficult decision that any human being was ever asked to make? How did Jesus get to the point that he was enabled to endure the cross as the writer of the book of Hebrews tells us? What can we learn from Jesus in dealing with our own experiences in life that That seem to create such conflict in our soul between doing what we know is the right thing to do at personal cost to ourselves for the sake of others? How can we do this? How can we be like Jesus like this? Well, Hebrews tells us, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher or perfecter. The Greek word is teleos. It means to the end purpose. What's the purpose? The end of our faith. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross. So why did Jesus do this? For joy's sake. For the joy that was set before him. What was the joy that was set before Jesus. Here it is. This is an amazing thing. Jesus was willing to do this because he knew that this was the only way that God himself could bring humanity back to God. You and I can't come to God on our terms. You and I only can come to God on his terms. And you and I cannot you know, just you know, think that we can do, you know, say we're sorry and that's the end of it. There's got to be more to it than that. There's actually, you know a sacrifice that's rendered. As a matter of fact, the whole Old Testament taught that when people sin, the end result of sin has always been death. And so the only way that you and I can basically live is that there has to be a substitute in our place. And so the whole Old Testament was teaching that, you know, that the fact that when you and I sin, an animal's life was lost and that 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 expediated and basically helped us to come back into a, you know, a relationship with God, that there was a life given, there was a substitute given on our behalf. Now the unfortunate part in the Old Testament was you know, they had to keep sacrificing animals because people kept sinning. And the problem was that you could never remove the consciousness of sin. How many know that sometimes people can do bad things and then they, they have to live with this terrible guilt and shame in their heart and mind? But you see, at the end of the age, when Jesus came into the world, he was the perfect lamb of God who died and took away our sins to such a degree that God can even free us from the sin of of shame and guilt. He can deliver us from that. And you and I can walk in a sense of wellness and joy and peace because of what Jesus did. What a powerful thing that is. The Bible says here, Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Now, that is true. We've never resisted sin to that point. But when Jesus was actually in the Garden of Gethsemane, we read that he was literally praying. And the Bible says he was sweating, and actually blood, the, the, the vessels in his, were pot, were, were, he was sweating, actually not just water, not just sweat, but actually blood itself, the, the blood vessels were actually breaking and fall, falling down on the ground. That was the kind of agony that Jesus Christ was experiencing in Gethsemane. You know the word Gethsemane means olive press. And the way olive oil was processed in the time of Christ and many today, still, they still process it the same way. And some of us who have been to Israel have actually seen some of these wine presses. Here's an example of one right here. Take a look at that, that big stone. They actually tie an animal to the end there and that stone, animal moves around and that stone just kind of grinds over the olives. Can you imagine how pressing that would be? That's one kind of an olive press. Here's another one. Here's a man putting, uh, it's kind of a round um, braided mat and they actually put the olives on it and then they put the olives inside these uh, cement cylinder things and then they have these presses and they just push down on it with all this weight. With that olive press thing, they just literally, the weight crushes the olives. And when they're doing olives, when they're actually pressing olives, you know what they do? They do it three times. And so when you and I go to the store and we buy, buy olive oil, it says extra pure virgin olive oil. That's, that means that that olive oil was taken from the first press. It's the best olive oil. It's, there's no impurities in it. It's pressed the first time. But you know what happens? They don't just press once. They press it again. And now in, the old te- in, in olden times, when they had the first press, they would take all of that oil and they would send it to the temple. That was to be dedicated to God. The best was given to God. Then they would have the second press and they would take the olive oil from that press and they would use it for common things like, like we do, for cooking, but also they'd use it for their lamps, to, you know, because they didn't have electricity, they'd use the oil, have a little wick and they'd light the lamp with the olive oil. But they didn't just press twice, they pressed three times. And the third time, they would literally crush the olives so that some of the skin and olives would actually flow into the olive oil and they would use that for making soap that was the least purifying of the of the olive oil now how many times did jesus in the garden of gethsemane pray three times and every every time he prayed after he prayed for a long time he'd come and check on his disciples and he did this three times And so there's a sense, there's a picture in our minds now of Jesus praying in the garden. But what is happening is just like, you know, the olive press is pressing olives, Jesus' soul is being pressed by this great agony that's happening within his soul. The experience of this sense of rejection from Almighty God. So, how did Jesus then gain the strength and courage to do God's will, even though? it would cost him everything. And how did Jesus overcome the temptation to abandon God's purposes for his life? And how can we learn from Jesus' example and overcome the battle that literally is raging within us? Because how many know there is a battle inside of us? And it intensifies when you and I now are at cross-purposes to God's will. So how do we win that battle? And that's what I want to just quickly touch on today. And I'm going to look at three elements really briefly here. That gives us, that helps us gain victory in a time when we're in in like an agonizing moment in our life. And I'm gonna just say this right now: I've been a Christian for over 40 years. You will have this experience. You will have a Gethsemane experience. So I would take notes, because this is gonna happen to you. I can guarantee you, don't, don't act like, well, this will never happen to me. It will happen to you. And when does it happen to you? When you're in a time of crisis. And I want to talk about that right now because it's very important. Some of you are in crisis. Some of you are about to have a crisis. And so how do we overcome? And the first one, we have to give ourselves to prevailing prayer. And what do I mean by prevailing prayer? We need to persist in our praying until we come to the place of resignation and surrender to God's will. That's prevailing prayer. We need to say, okay, God, I'm going to do it your way. I need to come to that resignation in my soul. You know, often the greatest enemy in our struggle, is not that we don't know what to do, but that we don't want to do it. You ever, how many have ever been there? We know what we, what we should do, but we don't want to do it. And you know, I love what uh, John Owen, old Puritan preacher said, however strong a castle may be, if a treacherous party resides inside, ready to betray at the first possible opportunity, the castle cannot be kept safe from the enemy. How many know that's true? If you've got traitors inside of your castle, it's pretty hard to defend the castle, right? Then he goes on to say this, traitors occupy our own hearts, ready to side with every temptation and to surrender to them all. Wow, isn't that an amazing analogy? It really is. What he's pointing out is that we are betrayed by our own human weaknesses and sinful propensities. That's what betrays all of our lives. But this is no excuse because God has given us greater weapons to overcome, but we must be responsible to use these weapons so what are these weapons that we need to use well first of all we need to use the weapon of prayer we need to use the weapon of god's word we need to use the weapon of surrender remember jesus when he was tempted some of you have studied this passage before you know matthew and luke chapter 4 both those books in the chapter 4 talk about the temptation in the wilderness and how did jesus overcome these temptations You know, first of all, he surrendered to God's will, which is his word, right? And when the devil came to him after Jesus had fasted 40 days, hadn't eaten, he said, turn these stones into bread. If you're really the son of God, turn these stones into bread. And what did Jesus say to him? It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now what is Jesus telling us? He's saying if you are only living for the things that you see in life, if you are, you've become a materialist, you're only living for what life provides for you, then you're not, you're not really living life. It's pretty superficial. It's pretty, it it it, it doesn't have the real purpose. Matter of fact, Jesus says, man cannot live by bread alone. Man needs to have something greater to live for. You know, But we live, but what, what sustains human life is the word of God. And God's word gives meaning and purpose and direction. And that's what sustains us, especially in times of difficulty. And so Jesus was able to overcome that temptation because, number one, he knew what God had to say. Number two, he knew God's will. And number three, he was willing to do God's will. And so he, he surrendered his will to the will of God at that point. Here in our text, we find Jesus praying while the disciples were sleeping. How many know that's a problem? Jesus now is gonna come through this agonizing moment, victorious, able to handle what's before him. The disciples are sleeping through the, you know, the process, and they're gonna come out of that process totally defeated, Jesus had warned them before going into the garden, you're going to forsake me. They said, no, we'll never do that, Jesus. They went to sleep in the garden. When they came out of it, they totally forsook him. Exactly what Jesus said. You set yourself up for failure. You needed to be praying. Can I just say something? All of us in this room, you know, prayer is such an interesting thing. Uh, you know, Jesus faces the hour of crisis and quiet confidence. The disciples face the crisis and they fall apart. Isn't that amazing? So i got to stop and ask the question, are you ready for the battle that lies before you? See, some of you say, well, I don't have a battle ahead of me, but you don't know what tomorrow holds. I am really getting more convinced we're going to experience more challenging moments. See, maybe you guys don't put two and two together, but I kind of, you know, do a little thinking about what's happening in our country right now. I'm thinking of what's happening in our province right now. I'm thinking what's happened in a city like Fort McMurray. How many know the people in Fort McMurray had no idea that one day life would be one way and the next day it'd be totally different? How many know that's true? You know? What am I saying to us? God is allowing crisis to come to Canada. You say, why is God doing that, Pastor? Because people in Canada have become very self reliant. People in Canada don't see any need for God. God is so merciful, He's not going to leave us in that state. God is allowing crisis to enter into our lives. Our dollar's plummeting, the oil prices are plummeting. You know There's a lot of things happening in our culture right now that are not healthy, and they're moving very quickly. And I don't think we, some of us are just sitting and we're sleeping. We don't even realize. We're, a, we're moving to a dramatic climax and a dramatic crisis. And if we are not praying, we will not do well in this crisis. So we need to sit down and say to ourselves, am I praying? See, it's a lot easier. How many, does, how many can be honest and say, I pray a lot better when I'm in crisis? It's, a, it's amazing if I'm, you know, turn the heat up and my prayer life goes up. Come on now. Anybody here say, that's probably right, Pastor. Any, can I have any admittance to this? If you crank it up hot enough, I will really start praying. If my life is really falling apart, it goes to a new level. And see, what's happening is in Canada, we've had such a good life, we've forfeited the best life. And we don't understand that. You see, the God life is the best life, but we're not into it because we're not having to be into it because God's been taking such good care of us. You know, we should be praying in spite of the good time we're in, but do we tend to do that? No, we do not. We tend to be sleeping like the disciples, and that's the problem. It says here in Luke chapter 22, verse 44, And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like the drops of blood falling to the ground. So Jesus, obviously, he was in an intense moment. But let me me just move on to the second point. I can do this. All that stuff? Somebody says, give me your notes afterwards, Pastor. (laughs) Second point, first point, if we're going to have victory, is we need to learn how to pray. Second point is we need to petition others for their support. You know one of the weaknesses in our culture? This is a weakness in our culture. We're independent. Isn't that true? We don't see our need for people. We don't live in accountability. We don't live in community. That's not the case in other parts of the world, by the way. In other parts of the world, because I've traveled a little bit, I see people praying more, and I see them in more into in the community. That's far closer to the biblical model. We don't even do that. We pray independently. We do everything independently. You know, when I go to India... I learned something that was really kind of shocking. People, they rarely pray privately one-on-one with God. They're always praying together. That's what I learned. You know, at first I didn't get this, you know. I go to church and they'll have a prayer meeting and it's unlike our prayer meeting. First of all, a lot of people show up. I don't know if it's because, you know, Dr. Thomas is a bully. No, I'm just teasing. He's not. He, He just, he's a motivator, but he makes sure all the Bible school students are there. That's over 100 people. And then the orphans are there, and that's 137 orphans. So you got 200. You have a good prayer meeting when people have to be there, right? And then they teach them how to pray. And so when I'm in church then, I'll have a meeting, and he said, let's pray. And the church decides to pray, and there's like, you know, more people here than is in this room right now. And they're all standing for 30 minutes, and they're all individually playing at the top of their lungs with absolute fervency for 30 straight minutes. I go, I don't know how to pray. I can't keep up with these guys. And why did they do that? Because they have nothing else. And you and I are distracted. You know? And so I, I, no wonder those guys, you know what, they have no money, and they're building buildings, and they're praying things into existence that are not. They're living in a realm of miracles because that's all they have is God, and you know what, that's all you need is God. In our culture, we have substituted things for God, and that's why we're having the problems we're having. We have all kinds of issues going on in our lives. But we need to share our struggles with mature and godly people who can support us with their prayers, and they're concerned, it's critical. It, you know, during, we need other people in our lives that we're sharing our lives with. Jesus asked those who were the closest to him to watch and to engage in prayer as the hour of spiritual conflict was about to intensify. But what did they do? They went to sleep. Isn't it interesting? In Mark's gospel, Peter, uh, Jesus says, he returned and found them sleeping, and he said, Simon. Simon was Peter's name before Jesus called him. Peter means to be a rock. Simon means to be nothing, sand, you know, you know weak, you know, variable. And he, he calls him by his prior name. He goes, Simon, couldn't you do this, you know? Don't you think there's a little message here? I think that was a little hint, you know, come on, get with the program, right? You know, couldn't you, couldn't you guys, you know, be with me? Couldn't you stay and watch with me? Now, how many know if Jesus felt the need... For human support and requested it, how much more do we need others to help us to support us in our hour of testing? If Jesus said, "Please help me," and He's the sinless Son of God, also fully man, if He saw the need for it, don't you think we're a little arrogant to think we can do these things by ourselves? How many think that's a little bit of an arrogancy on our part. See, we need to have relationships. So you know all these people that go, yeah, I have my private faith. I'm going, well, that's not the biblical faith. Sorry to tell you guys. You know, I've been a Christian for over 40 years. I can say this. If it wasn't for the fact that I've I've been in community for over 40 years, I wouldn't be serving God today. You know, the people who are not in community are in trouble. I'll just tell you that right now. They're not in the same condition. Because you, know, you are challenged. Think about it. You come here week after week after week. You're being challenged, right? Your life's being challenged. You're, you're held to a high standard. But when you're on your own, you're held to no standard. You're just drifting. You're creating your own standards. Our culture has standards. How many know they're not very high? They're getting lower all the time. We think we're really helping people. We think we're empowering people. You know what, I, you know what we're doing? We're destroying people. We're in denial. We're not helping people. You don't help people by lying to them. You help people by helping them see the truth and see the need to correct what's wrong in their life so that they can get healthy and better. You know, people will let you down. We need to understand that we build these human relationships, but then we need to develop realistic expectations. Even the good people, the best people can fail you. Jesus' friends let him down. That can happen to you. You know, I've had a lot of people say, well, you know, the church let me down. Well, like, that can happen. People can let you down. But what are your expectations? Are you there for others? Some people said, yeah, I was there for others, but nobody's there for me. I said, well, then you were in the Gethsemane experience. And I've had them. Where everybody has forsaken you. And you're all alone. Now you're becoming like Jesus. You're, you're looking. It's not that you're rejecting human support. You're looking for it, but you're not getting it. But Let me move on here to the third. Well, Jesus kind of explains why. He said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. This is not an excuse for sin. It's rather that what Jesus means it to be, an encouragement to strengthen our resolve to do what is right by spending time with God in prayer. He's saying, yeah, I understand why this is happening, You know, a lot of people sin, and I go, I get why they're doing what they're doing. It doesn't mean it's right. It doesn't mean they've chosen the right path. I understand why they're doing it. You can be understanding of people and why they do what they do, but it doesn't mean you have to agree with what they did. There is a better way. I am convinced the Jesus way is the best way. I'm convinced the word of God is the best way. I'm convinced God's word is God's will, and if we embrace God's word and we embrace God's will, it is the best road for us to walk. Because our obedience to God will bring blessing to many. And our disobedience to God will not only hurt us, but it'll hurt other people. And we need to understand that. It's not just about us. Let me move on to the third element here it's simply that we permit God to have his way in our lives. In other words, we surrender or yield our wills to fulfill God's purpose for our lives. Can I ask you a question? How do you perceive your life? Do you see yourself at belonging? That I'm the master of my own ship, I'm the, I'm the captain of my own destiny, I can do what I want? Or do you see yourself made in the image of God, created by God, accountable to God, and you don't even own your own body? Jesus said, I've purchased you, you know, submit your bodies to me, you know, that's, that's your rightful act of worship, you don't even own your own body, wow. In other words, all that I am and all that I have and all that I ever will be, all belongs to God. So if God says, this is what I want, I go, fine, let's do it. You see, it depends on your attitude, how you see yourself. You know, if we walk around saying, I have these rights, listen, probably the greatest decision I made as a new Christian was I laid down my rights. I made a decision years ago as a young Christian. I just said, you know what? I want to be one of God's love slaves. I want to be a servant of the Most High God. I want to be a slave of God. I want to do what God wants me to do. I want to lay aside my rights, and I want to embrace His will. What a powerful thing to do. It changed my life. It meant that I was going to do God's will no matter what. And have I been tested on that since? And the answer is absolutely. More than once. And I've had to come to situations in my life where I've had to make decisions and I've had to say this is what I want but I know this is what God wants. And what I want has to die and what God wants has to be done even though it's costing me something. Even though I'm not happy about doing it, I'm gonna do it anyways because I know that's what God wants. And eventually, you know what happens? When I do what God wants me to do, joy comes into my life. And I know if I'd have done what I wanted to do, which was a very selfish thing, it would have actually destroyed me and it would have hurt a lot of people. And I know that. So it's a no-brainer. Do God's will, right? We need to know, I'm just jumping over here because I only got a couple moments here. When you're thinking about and trying to understand this, even in our Lord's life, it's the surrendering of His will to His Father. It's necessary to realize that this was not an isolated or sudden acceptance of the Father's will. Jesus said, I delight to do your will. He did that through all of His life, but this was the most difficult moment in His life. The thing that He was being asked to do was the most difficult thing He had ever done. And in these prayers, these prayers that we're seeing in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Lord was not for one moment abandoning the work the Father had given him to do, but he was asking, in effect, if the cross was really indispensable to the accomplishment of that mission. In other words, is there another way we can get the same thing done? That's what he was praying. He was asking the Father's omnipotence, his all powerfulness. Could, could there not be another means of effecting his will? But this request did not mean he was rebelling against that will. He said very simply, is there another way? But if not, it's fine. I'll do what you're asking me to do. Not my will, but yours be done. Wow, is that powerful? So let me close with this. So how do we overcome in the great tests of life? Number one, we prevail in prayer until we can surrender our will to God. Number two, Seek other like-minded people to journey this life together, to share a measure of accountability to each other, to be praying with one another. We need to have prayerful relationships with each other. You know, we do things in our church. It's interesting. On Sunday mornings at 8 o'clock, I meet with men for prayer. This whole service has been prayed up by people. And you know what? If you want to join me, I'd love to have you come. Just come to my office at 8 o'clock. We'll pray together. There are people in our church, they're committed to praying right through the first service. Others come and pray through the second service. There's other people come and pray through the third service. You know why we do that? Because we recognize that what we're doing here is not just talking and singing, but we're actually enlisting the power and the presence of God's life in the life of this congregation. We know that you have a powerful will And we know that God has to speak into that and there's resistance to that sometimes. And we're praying that God's will be done in every service. You can join us and be a part of that. Let me move on to the last thing. Finally, we have to surrender our wills to God as revealed in his word regardless of what we want. So I'm gonna have a stand as we close right now. And I think of that amazing text of scripture found in the book of Romans. You know It said about Jesus. Do you know what Jesus did? It said, because he obeyed, many became righteous. is that an amazing thing? Because Jesus did what the Father asked him to do, many people were blessed. But when you and I make selfish decisions and we do what we want to do, many people are hurt, including ourselves. And I believe this morning, you know, I was thinking about this, I was praying, I was saying, Lord... I have felt deep in my spirit today that there are people right now wrestling with key issues in their soul. You're wrestling with things. And there's a battle of the will going on right now. It's a huge spiritual battle. And God is speaking to you today. You know, isn't it amazing that we can come to a service, and I've I've, I've had this experience. I've come to a church I wasn't even a part of. I was just a visitor. Walked into that room, and all of a sudden, God was talking to me. And what was being talked about was actually directed right into my soul and God was talking to me that day. I believe that there's some of you here today God is talking to you. It's a battle between you doing what God wants you to do or you doing what you want to do, which is not what God wants you to do. And you're wrestling with it. There's a spiritual battle going on. Can I tell you a little secret? When you're at that place, When you'd rather do your thing than God's thing, and you're really struggling, that's that's the moment you need to cry out and say, God, help me. I can't do it. I need your help. And you know what God does in His grace? He delivers you. He'll come along and assist you to help you to do the right thing. I'm amazed at that. You know, I'm a little older and I can look back over my life and there's been a few moments and I said, God, I don't know if I can do the right thing. I need your help. And God changed the whole thing. And he made it a lot easier for me to do the right thing. Is that amazing? Is God good? He is good. With every head bowed right now, I believe God is speaking to hearts right now. You're not here by accident today. You're here by divine providence. You're here by, for a purpose. God is speaking. You're, you've been wrestling in your soul between doing your will or God's will. And you want to surrender today. Just raise your hand. That's you. You're, God's speaking to you. Just raise your hand. You need help. You're saying, God, I need help. Raise them real high. There's a lot of you. Come on now. Let's be honest. With the first service, there's so many people Raise their hand. Yeah, again in the second service. Many people are raising their hands right now. I need God's help. I cannot do this apart from you, Lord. I'm struggling with your will in my life. But I want to surrender today. I want to do your will. And I will tell you today that the outcome of you choosing to ask God for help is going to be joy. You're going to bring blessing in your life. You're going to bring blessing in the lives of many people. Isn't that true? sure is. You don't want to lose this battle, folks. It's too important because you will suffer and many people will suffer with you. But today you're saying, Lord, help me. Lord, help me to surrender my will to yours. Help me to do your will. I know the right thing to do. Give me the strength to do it. Give me the grace to do it. Even if you have to remove things out of my life to help me to do the right thing, I give you permission, Father. Lord, I just thank you. You are such a gracious God. I pray this afternoon, right now, Lord, that you're going to continue to create a deepening resolve in the heart of everyone that responded today. You are going to deliver them from the evil one. You're going to lead them out of that temptation. You are going to give them the strength, Lord, to do the right thing. And many people are going to be blessed because of that decision. And you're going to bring great joy in their hearts. They may suffer for a season. They may have tears of sorrow for the moment. But boy, are they going to rejoice when they see the fruit and the benefit of doing the right thing. And we thank you for that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.